Well, we certainly appreciate Dia and Blake and everyone joining us. This is their third time with us, and we get them one more time before the summer, so we're thankful for that as well. Well, we are uh, in Acts sermon number 17. This is a crazy long series. But as we've been seeing all the way through, Acts really plays out like an adventure story. And our passage today in Acts chapter 19 is really that. Uh, It gets caught up in a crazy, crazy adventure. Uh, But in order to kind of understand this, we need a little bit of context this morning. And so we're going to go back to the the Gospel of Matthew and Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. And what's happening is Jesus for the very first time, is sending out his disciples to try some ministry on their own. Uh, Two at a time. Two disciples, two disciples. He's sending them all out. But just before they leave, he gives them this amazing, very sober kind of warning. He says, don't think I've come to make life cozy. I've come to cut, make a sharp knife cut between son and father, daughter and mother, bride and mother-in-law, Cut through these cozy domestic arrangements and free you for God. Well-meaning family members can be your worst enemies. If you prefer father over mother over me, you don't deserve me. If you prefer son or daughter over me, you don't deserve me. Those might be some of the toughest words Jesus ever spoke. Stating it absolutely flat out, he needs to be our number one loyalty. And if he isn't, then ultimately we don't deserve to follow him. Now, when the gospel is preached, people ultimately have to come to a decision, don't they, about Jesus? Is he Lord and Savior or not? Is he the greatest person who ever lived or is he a crazy, raving lunatic? The metaphor of a sword or knife that cuts describes how unbelievers may respond. If they refuse to accept Jesus then there can be a disruption in relationships. We as followers of Jesus are always called to be people of peace. We serve the Prince of Peace. But the message itself may cause a disturbance. So that's what Jesus gave his disciples. He warned them. Fast forward 22 years later to the book of Acts, chapter 19, and Paul and his helpers are diligently preaching and teaching and planting a church in Ephesus. And this exact thing is happening. Many, many people are giving up their pagan religions, like the worship of Artemis, and becoming Christ followers. Sure enough, disruption and disturbance follow. So I've entitled the sermon, Kingdoms in Conflict. And my first point is entitled, The Craftsman Gets Salty. So Acts chapter 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 23. About that time, man, glasses are hard to get used to. (laughs) About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers and related trades and said, you know, my friends, We receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul is convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically 
the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now, you've probably heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, we're going to do a little mini quiz this morning. And we're going to find out how well you know the seven wonders of the ancient world. All right. The very first one, the statue of Zeus at Olympia. Hands up for yes. Is that one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? All five of you. Perfect. The answer to the question is yes. That is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. All right. Number two, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. How many for yes? A few of you. And the actual answer is no. No, that was... That was built much later. Although it's pretty crazy, you got to admit, that thing just leaning over. All right, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Is that one of them? Oh, we got some more for that one. And the correct answer is yes, that is one of the ancient wonders. All right, the Colossus at Rhodes. This massive giant statue that stood over the harbor. Yeah, all right, it's about half, okay, yes, that was. Apparently, Candace, my incredible administrator, found out this week there are plans to try to rebuild that thing. Can you imagine? Like, look at that sailboat, it's unbelievable. Going, okay, all right. Um, the Dr. Pepper Museum in Waco, Texas. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Dustin. All right, clearly no. Come on, I had to try, right? Sneak it in there. Uh, how about the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt? Yeah, almost everybody. Yes, that is one of the wonders of the ancient world. And last but not least, the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. All right, a few of you. It is absolutely one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And that brings us to our passage today. These people in Ephesus are so proud of this massive temple, and apparently it was awe-inspiring. We kind of think of an ancient temple with its marble pillars maybe a smaller thing. Apparently the size of this thing was just astounding. There's an ancient traveler who went and visited different ones of these ancient wonders, and he said, you know... I stood in front of this, and I stood in front of this, and I was amazed. And he said, I got to Ephesus, and this thing just kind of blew my mind. So the people are really proud of this. It's, it's kind of even beyond just the pagan worship of it. They almost view it as part of their, their culture, who they are. And it's become very famous over the Roman Empire. Now... Jesus said when the gospel is preached, it causes a disruption. And that's a pretty apt metaphor, the, the, the knife or the sword cutting. You see, this thing was wrapped up with the economics of the city. Because the people of Ephesus, a lot of them were skilled tradespeople. And they made statues of Artemis, the goddess. And the terracotta pottery ones were kind of the cheaper ones. And then they would make the more expensive ones out of silver. 
Now, archaeologists have uncovered a lot of the pottery ones, and they quickly realize, wow, the amount of ones we found, the amount of these silver statues as well would have been staggering. This was a huge, huge business. Except that many people at this point in history are starting to tire of this pagan worship. They found the worship of Artemis to be hollow. They lack substance. And they, they almost sense in themselves there, there's something deeper here. We know that there's a God who created this world. The plants, the rocks, the trees, the animals, the people, all of this amazing stuff. We know and we want a relationship with that creator. So as Paul and his companions proclaim the truth about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, as they proclaim, proclaim the remarkable truth about Jesus, his miraculous birth, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, it kind of grips people's hearts and they go, yes, this is what we've been waiting for. We knew there was something more. And these silver idols that were once so popular are just kind of sitting on the shelf. Sales have crashed. And a man named Demetrius is kind of their informal leader. So he takes matters into his own hands. As we read in those verses, 23 to 27, I'm just going to read verse 27 again. There is a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty." Now, you think, okay, that's an interesting little historical tidbit there, Pastor D. What difference does that make in my life? But that actually kind of raises an interesting question. What if in our modern day, in 2022, following Jesus actually affected our jobs, our employment, our source of income? Would we actually still be willing to follow Jesus for that? What if it caused us a period of economic hardship for a time? What if it led to some family tensions? That's a pretty steep price to pay. But then we come back to those words of Jesus. If you prefer father or mother over me, you don't deserve me. I'm not going to soften it or sugarcoat it this morning. Following Jesus is a high calling. He must be our number one loyalty. All right, we're going to pick it up in verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for two hours, 
great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What a crazy scene. Now, we have seen that obviously money is a motivating factor here to get this riot going, but it's also this sense of of identity for the whole people of Ephesus. They're like, you're taking away what we're famous for. This can't happen. And it mentions they all rushed into a theater. Here's the crazy part. You can actually travel to the ancient site of Ephesus today in Turkey, and you can see this amphitheater. It's amazingly well-preserved for over 2,000 years. That's pretty incredible. Now, at its peak, archaeologists figure this thing, when it was in full glory, could have held 24,000 spectators. That's amazing. Think of Rogers Arena in Vancouver where the Canucks play. That thing taps out at 18,910. That's pretty amazing. What an building accomplishment at that point in history. Now, we aren't sure exactly how full. Was the whole thing full of 24,000? Maybe we're not sure, sure, but we're given a couple clues. Verse 29 says, Soon the whole city was in an uproar. This word had spread. This riot was causing chaos. And then in verse 30, it says, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. Whatever the size of the crowd, it was sizable. This was a lot of people. And it says, once they got all riled up, they started yelling for two straight hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Pretty crazy. Now, Paul was a good leader. He cared about the people that were helping him, the future leaders that he was training. And two of them are these men, Gaius and Aristarchus. And all of a sudden, these guys are captured, thrown right into the middle of the amphitheater there down in the, in the stage area. And he knows they're in grave danger. And everything in Paul wants to rush in and rescue them. But all the Christians there said, no, 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 no. If, they, if that crowd sees you, Paul, you're a dead man. And so they hold him back. Even some of the officials. Paul had been in Ephesus, remember, for well over two and a half years. He had gained sort of some notoriety. And even these provincial officials sent him a message and said, whatever you do, do not go into the middle of that arena. That senseless mob is going to trample you. Now, Bible scholars have noticed that Luke, the writer of Acts, has kind of a dry sense of humor. In verse 32 in his example, he writes that some people were shouting one thing, some people were shouting another, and he goes, most of the people didn't even know why they were there. And if you think about modern day riots, that's actually true, isn't it? It usually starts out with a small group that's protesting something. And they know what they're doing. They know why they're there. They know the facts. And they are legitimately doing their thing. But then it just attracts more and more people. And half the people are there just because it's the biggest thing going on. They don't even really know the issue. Now, can you imagine how frightened these two guys are? Gaius and Aristarchus. They're probably thinking, it might all end today. This might be our final day on planet Earth. And uh, they were probably convinced at some point, as the crowd started screaming and yelling, they thought, yeah, it's going to happen. We're going to die today. And you know, the Apostle Paul would write these amazing words in the book of Philippians. Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Or in the message, 
Alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his prize. Life versus even more life. I can't lose. And now that I've seen this, this passage in Acts, I almost wonder if this is one of the experiences that Paul had in mind when he wrote those incredible words. You know, there has to be a really deep place in your Christian life to reach that kind of settled decision. That doesn't just happen kind of in the heat of the moment when you're standing in front of a crazy mob of 20,000 people yelling and screaming, willing to do you in. That kind of statement, that kind of decision needs to be arrived at long before. It's probably in a quiet moment in the quietness of our own soul. Now, we aren't told how Gaius and Aristarchus reacted to the moment, but we do know that this didn't stop them. Once this event passes and all these crazy things happen, we know they stayed faithful. Some people might have been tempted to give up. They're like, that is just too much. I am out. I am done, Paul. But that's not what these two guys. Just in Acts chapter 20, the next uh, chapter, it says, Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopatar, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus, and Secundus from Thessalonica, and Gaius from Derby. So we know that these guys stayed faithful. They committed to following Jesus no matter the cost. You know, we all are thinking a lot about the country of Ukraine as we hear the news and all the horrible aspects of the war happening. And I guarantee there are faithful Ukrainian Christians that have had to make a stand or will have to make a stand in the days to come. And that decision, whether they give in on their faith, whether they betray or they stand up boldly, that decision will have had to be made in the quietness of their own soul. And that's something I think that each of us can ponder in the quietness of our hearts now, long before we are tested in any kind of an extreme way. What would we do in the worst circumstances? All right, so how did this whole scene, what happened? How did it turn out? We're going to pick it up in verse 35. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After this, he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Now, this guy, whoever this clerk is from the city, is one amazing dude. 
I would actually say this is an incredible example of a leader making a difference in a crisis. And I found a blog by pastor and blogger Dale Tedder, and I'm grateful for some of his insights. And he points out that right in the middle of this riot, this guy stands up. And there's no indication that this man has become a follower of Jesus. This is just a leader who sees an injustice about to happen. He sees two innocent guys, Gaius and Aristarchus, that are probably going to be killed if he doesn't jump in and do something. But he's also worried that this riot will just get out of hand, and if that happens, the Romans are going to send in legions of troops and probably crush the city. So this guy knows well what's at stake. Can you picture him standing there at the bottom of that amphitheater, quieting this crowd, probably 20,000 plus rowdy Ephesians, He's super smart. First, he appeals to their, their pride, their sense of pride about being citizens of Ephesus. They are the center of this great temple of Artemis. And he reminds them that they're famous. They are famous over the whole known world at that point, the entire length and breadth of the Roman Empire. And he says, you know what? Because we are so famous for this, we actually have, it comes with a position of respect. And then in verse 35, he says something really odd. He says, we know that this temple of Artemis, her image fell from heaven. What on earth is he talking about? Well, scholars have actually found there's three other instances in ancient writings where meteorites fell, landed near a city, and the people went out, found this meteorite, and this particular one that landed near Ephesus, it sort of looked like a woman. And Artemis is always portrayed with many breasts, and this meteorite looked like a woman with many breasts. That is just some kind of look there. She's got some things going on. But anyways, they, they found this meteor, and they decided that was going to be the centerpiece of her temple. And there's actually some ancient writings that refer to this. So when he says her image fell from heaven, that's what he's referring to. All right, so this guy gives them some kudos. He says, you know, we're famous for this. We, we live in an amazing city, all this kind of stuff. But then he does this brilliant thing. He inserts the word, therefore. And he says, you know... Because we are this, therefore, we should be the kind of people that have peace and order, not a riot. A riot would be beneath us. And he essentially tells the mob that these two guys have committed no crime. They haven't robbed a temple. They haven't blasphemed the goddess. He says, in fact, you guys, we are refined and respected citizens of Ephesus, and we shouldn't behave like uncouth and uncivilized barbarians. And then he finally says, you know what? If there's a legit problem, the courts are open. Take the problem there. And he eventually dismisses this crowd. This is kind of pretty amazing. And uh, the pastor that I quoted from his blog, he says, you know, this is an example 
of God's kind of general grace to human beings. People that don't know him are still made in the image of God. He wires them up with gifts and abilities. And he says this guy was clearly given those gifts and abilities. And it made me think about all of us. All of us are confronted with situations. Now, it's probably not standing in front of a mob of 20,000, but it may be a conflict with one person. It may, it may be a situation at work or, or in our school environment or even an extended family gathering. And there's everything in us that wants to not deal with conflict, to run away, to minimize it, to get rid of it. But ultimately, that's not being a leader. That's cowardice. If, if we care more about what people think than what God thinks, then we're fearing the wrong thing. And this city clerk who, from all accounts, didn't even know Jesus at this point, this city clerk chose to do what was right even in the face of possible opposition. And I want to say to all of us, everybody watching online this morning, I want to say to myself, I want us to ask this question. Is Jesus calling me to make a bold stand for the good of others? I've talked to lots of people who at their work over a lifetime, there were certain times in their working life when, when they felt like their fellow employees were being mistreated or, or an injustice was happening or someone was doing something uh, you know, unethical or even criminal. And they had this gut check moment and they had to decide, am I going to stand up and make a bold stand or do I just keep quiet? That is an incredible challenge from this chapter. Maybe that isn't a work situation. Maybe that's more of a home situation. Maybe that's more of a situation <coughs> with our friends. But I want to say in closing, church, make no mistake. God has allowed the devil temporary sway in this world. And he stands in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. May God give us strength to always choose Jesus over every other thing in life. And I want to encourage us, make that decision today, and we will be ready to face a riot tomorrow. Amen?